Hello there and welcome to Season 5, Episode 8 of the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast. I am Vlad and my guest today is Eric Forskuil, Forskuil, actually, that's the way you pronounce it in Dutch. But for all of you Americans out there, his name is Eric Voskuil and he is a developer for the Lib Bitcoin project. And he is also working on a book lately. And you may have seen him at conferences lately speaking about economics because he is both a C++ programming master, but he's also very acquainted with Austrian economics. So hello, Mr. Kyle. Hello, Vlad. How are you? I'm good. I'm happy that I get to talk to you. Yeah, thanks or for hopefully me. talk with you, not to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So first of all, I got to ask you, for how long have you been working on the Lib Bitcoin project? And what is it that you do? I see that you have a repository where you forked the Bitcoin core project, but you're writing in C++. Uh, I've, I've been working on Lib Bitcoin going, uh, it's, it's in my seventh year now. Although I didn't do a lot of coding in the, in the past year, um, worked more on uh, developing other people, raising money, uh, speaking and writing um, to support that. But uh, yeah, we, I'm, I'm still active in the project. Um, previously, it was more uh, full-time coding. Um, uh, what was the second part of your question? Um, it, it was about the C++ repository. Uh, that's that's what I wanted to say. Uh, LibBitcoin has never been a fork of Bitcoin Core or Bitcoin D or Satoshi's code. Um, if you go back through the history of the LibBitcoin repository, the first line of code, just a few lines, was written by Patrick Straitman, um, and it grew from there. Uh, he was working with Amir Taki when they started it. So it, it's never been a fork. It's one of the things that makes it unique. Um, it's got, uh, in many ways, a very different design. So, um, for the most part, I think almost universally, um, you know, with the exception of the Bitcoin, other implementations are either forks in C++ or they're language ports. In other words, they just port the existing code uh, and its structure and design into another language. But Libitcoin uh, isn't that. There, there were a couple times when uh, code sections, um, like a single class or something, was was used for a time, but there's n- there's none of that remaining in the, in the Bitcoin anymore. <clears throat> right. I don't get to talk to developers like you very often, so I have to ask you, why is it that you do not necessarily you because LibBitcoin, as we have established, is something different? But why do ports of a repository exist in different other languages? Uh, people, so I think sometimes people just do it to learn the code, uh, to learn. I mean, you really can't understand it as a programmer unless you work through the code in thoroughly. And a good way to do that is to take a language that you like or comfortable with, familiar with, and do the port. You'll you'll get to the point where you you know you do understand all the code. The entire um, Bitcoin Core repository is on the order of half a million lines. Uh, it's a lot of stuff. It's not just you know full node. There's wallet and UI and stuff. But Libitcoin is is about the same size, uh, you know, if not bigger. It's it's also about a half a million lines of code, but it doesn't have any 
graphical interface or, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a different, it's a different thing. It's meant as it's, it's designed as a developer library, um, with command line implementations for node and, and tools. So it's structured differently. Um, but, um, the, you know, the reason people do stew language ports, you know, or, or, or many, I guess they just want to learn the code. They want to be able to use it or have other people use it in another language. Um, there, there, there are certain other implementations that are, uh, developer libraries, but as far as I know, they're not very complete. Typically what you see is people will do a language port of the node, um, or they'll write some utilities um, or some, you know, smaller libraries. But to write an entire library that gives you access to all of the act aspects of Bitcoin uh, is a pretty major task. And I, I don't think that's been done aside from the Bitcoin, even in another language. Um, so, yes, people, people just like to work in other languages and like to explore the code. Okay, so could you mention a couple of breakthroughs that you have had with the Lib Bitcoin project and why you think it's important for people to know about it? Breakthroughs. Um, well, Namir did a number of things that were, and I, I think, very innovative. Um, <clears throat> if you were to design uh, a Bitcoin full node, um, from scratch, after knowing the design, unlike you know Satoshi, you know presumably evolved the design um, in the first attempt to get it working, which is generally what we call a prototype, right? You're just trying to trying to get it all together, trying to figure out what you have to do, um, and that evolved into an implementation. And it doesn't appear that Satoshi was a professional programmer, not not from looking at his his code or his design, but um, once you get to that point, you have the advantage of hindsight. You can look at the whole thing and you can step back and say, well, okay, I'm trying to achieve these things. You know, how would I do it? What, what trade-offs would I want to make? So Amir made um, certain design decisions that are innovative. Um, I spent a lot of time working in that code, um, kind of trying to make it more, um, you know, tested, more uh well factored more consistent in terms of interface design um more reliable uh more readable i mean these are all things that amir did a good job with and i just tried to you know apply my energy to making them even better um so one of the one of the things of the many he did was he he um after the first implementation which he did i think using level db which is the database um that eventually, uh, after this, uh, I think um, Bitcoin D adopted, which later became Bitcoin Core. Um, and he wasn't too excited about um, using Level DB performance-wise. And um, he, so when he did the, the next iteration, he redesigned the, the database um, using uh, memory-mapped uh, files. And this had um, it was a complete redesign the architecture of the of this of the store, 
which kind of drives a lot of stuff. And it was, it was pretty innovative because basically he came to the conclusion that, you know, really you only need to append to new data to a blockchain, right? I mean, you get reorgs, um, but you don't get enough that, I mean, they're so inconsequential in terms of volume, you know, the reorganized blocks that, and often when they are reorganized, you're going to, you're going to end up, uh, confirming those transactions later anyway. So he, he developed a memory map file system where you're only appending data to the files. And he implemented those files um, in terms of headers and transactions in what we call hash tables. Um, you know, the primary use of hashing in software development is, is for um, uh, table lookups, you know, not for the way we think of it in Bitcoin. And um, these hash tables give you uh, generally, you know, close to constant time lookup for data. So very, uh, in other words, it doesn't matter how big the file gets, the, the cost of looking up something in the, in the file remains constant, which is ideal when you're looking at um, code complexity. So uh, he achieved, you know, constant time lookup, um, a great uh, greatly simplifying um, a lot of code, um, and uh, but it's a trade-off. Um, there's a there's downside to um, that architecture, which uh, we still live with and uh, are hoping to evolve out of at some point. But um, the, the trade-off is is essentially one of speed for um, fault tolerance. Right? So if you if you shut down your store in the middle of a write or something, you could corrupt the whole store. So we can detect that, but it's very hard to prevent. Um, but if you're running a server and you want high query speed, which is what he was going for, um, it's ideal. So um, it's an extremely fast query server as a result. So it's one of the things he did. Um, in other words, the use of ZeroMQ as a client-server interface as opposed to what you see in Bitcoin D, which is the, uh, and then later uh, Bitcoin Core, which is the uh, um, JSON RPC interface. Very, very, uh, you know, it's not securable and it's slow and uh, um, doesn't handle a heavy load. Um, so really designed to sit behind, you know, your, your firewall and feed another machine, which is going to serve up your data. And that's kind of how companies tend to use it. So Libitcoin is designed to itself you know, sit on the internet and provide rapid, securable um, uh, query service. Does that very well. Not so great as a wallet server um, because people unplug their computers all the time while they're doing things. And it's very easy to lose your database that way with Libitcoin. So um, one of the so when I when I started doing more advanced work in the Bitcoin, um, a couple of the things that I did was uh, that I was very excited about was one eliminating the mempool. Um, uh, Amir had actually eliminated uh, had not implemented a, a store a database of UTXOs and uh, but he did have a uh, block pool and did have a memory pool. And I was successful in eliminating both the block pool and the memory pool. So we don't have problems like um, 
you know, running out of memory and having to start dumping valid data because you're getting low on memory and therefore we don't have to track memory usage. Um, we don't lose, we don't lose uh, valuable data that can potentially be very valuable to, to miners. Um, uh, so working towards being a, um, a very optimal mining server as well. Um, so we have a, we have what we call a transaction pool, but it's not in memory. Um, and we never lose transactions, um, as a result. And one of the things that, uh, happened, I don't know if you remember, but I probably do when, when the, when the price spiked a couple years ago, um, transaction volume got really intense and the backlog in the transaction pool got very, very high. And there was a company, a Canadian company that had written a uh, high performance um, web front end on directly on top of LeBitcoin. So no intermediate store database or anything, just, just write, running queries directly to LeBitcoin um, as the back end for a block explorer. The thing was called, um, I think it was called Voyager. Um, and the, uh, during this period, um, implementations that were running block explorers on, on, uh, Bitcoin core started failing, um, <clears throat> because of, you know, presumably because of the, uh, you know, large number of transactions that were hitting the memory pool, but we didn't have a memory pool. So the, uh, the query speed remained constant and the servers remained up. It was lightning fast and never had any problems. <laughs> and I remember the, the guys who wrote it, uh, it was, uh, can, can coin Canadian coin. Yeah. Can coin. It wasn't a coin. It was a, it was a, it was an exchange. I think, um, they, uh, they were commenting on how they, you know, they weren't experiencing any problems at all, which I thought was a good validation of the design concept of, of not just not having a memory pool. So not losing any of the data, but, um, uh, getting optimal performance as well. Yeah, that's very interesting to think that a client is much more efficient when it it's operated by miners and exchanges as opposed to end users. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're if you're op, you're op, always optimizing for something when you're writing code, right? These are never clear. Well, I can't say they're never right. I mean, there's sometimes there's clear clear cut choices that you would do in any case, but. Typically, when you're looking at performance optimization, you're 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 choosing one thing over another. And Amir chose uh, query service over fault tolerance. Um, and I chose when I opted to eliminate the memory pool. I chose to not optimize. To, I actually think that the memory pool is a de-optimization. I don't think it provides any any op, any advantage. Um, if implemented correctly, storing the storing, uh, unconfirmed transactions on disk is, um, is basically using your cheapest resource. The cheapest resource on a computer is the disk, right? Disk space is, is ridiculously cheap compared to RAM. So, um, why you would want to fill RAM with data that's going to end up on your disk anyway, um, in the vast majority of cases, um, and that you'd want to have anyway, even if it isn't confirmed yet, if you're a miner, it's, you know, I just, I just don't see the reason for that decision. I, I think it was one of Satoshi's just kind of, just kind of said, well, you know, these are unconfirmed, so we'll just leave them in memory, right? Not realizing that you're going to get 
you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of these things in memory, and you're going to have to start putting them on disk, or you're going to, have to throw them out. And ironically, the computer is automatically going to start um, start moving that memory off into disk once memory starts getting full anyway, and using virtual RAM, which is not not optimal. Um, so by immediately taking any valid unconfirmed transaction and storing it in your in the same transaction store that you're storing confirmed transactions, you've already got them stored. So when they show up confirmed, you don't have to do anything with them. Um, and you can store any number. So the trade-off there is that you may end up storing transactions that never get confirmed, right? And I think that's the reason why he used a memory pool. Well, we're not going to store them on disk because that's permanent, you know, or we have to delete them and that's costly. Let's just store them in RAM. The thing is you really just, um, when you look at the numbers, um, you know, transactions generally eventually get confirmed. So um, you might as well store them. And the cost of storing an unconfirmed transaction is so low um, that it's not worth optimizing um, disk space for, right? Um, so the other theory was that if you could, if you can sync the chain fast enough, you can, you can just simply wipe out any unconfirmed transactions that are lurking in your store um, by resyncing the chain. Right. Anything, anything that's been been stored unconfirmed for a long period of time, if it doesn't show back up on the network, you're not going to see it. So yeah, you can clean up just by resyncing. So we prioritize that instead of, you know, prioritize complex optimizations to keep memory usage low. Anyway, probably uh, probably a bunch of technical mumbo jumbo to your listeners, but uh, interesting stuff to me. Oh, it also makes a lot of sense though. Because usually RAM memory is used because it's volatile, so you can clear it faster. And also it has quicker access times. Yeah, you can use the RAM a lot faster than your hard drive. But in the case of Bitcoin, you don't have such large amounts of data. You're not loading up you know, graphical engines that yeah, require well, a lot of yeah. memory. But if you're storing you know, tr transaction pool in memory, it is a large amount of data, potentially enough that you have to actually throw out transactions. Initially, we had a we had a circular buffer, so we'd throw out the old transactions, right? But that can lead to problems. Now you can you can you can end up without the required prerequisite transaction parent transactions for ones you're already holding, and you 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 can basically invalidate your your transaction pool. So then it gets complex, right? When you start throwing transactions out, you have to throw out ones that are not um, dependencies of other transactions. So so you have this this complex process of trying to trying to maintain the amount of RAM that you want to use, um, but RAM is really on a computer. It's it's scratch space, right? It's working space, working memory. Uh, it's not intended to be persistent, um, and if you use it that way, it, it gets used up pretty quickly. So. I think you have touched on a very sensitive spot there. And a lot of people will find it blasphemous that you said that Satoshi was not a professional programmer or a coder. But that's actually the reality. And a lot of people don't realize it when they first get in yeah. the space. They, they deify Satoshi and imagine he's some sort of god of coding and economics and cryptography and whatnot. But there's a lot of development that's needed. And Actually, if you look back in history, you're going to find out that Hal Finney has fixed a lot of issues with the code. And there was an early inflation bug, which produced a few billion Bitcoins, and they had to hard fork the network. 
So, yeah, I mean, it's not a knock on Satoshi. I mean, the fact that he got it done without being a professional programmer is, is pretty impressive. Um, and um, also, you know, coding it while you're figuring it out is it's a it's a it's a necessary prototyping process. And um, the mistakes will be made. That's why that's why you know rule number one of of software engineering is don't ship your prototype, right? Because there will be problems. Um, that's why you do it to find those problems and to find the right design and and to figure out what to optimize later. But um, I think not being a you know a professional programmer or software engineer, uh, Satoshi kind of fell prey to one of the anti patterns that are pretty is pretty common in software development, which is premature optimization. He was optimizing for all kinds of things, but when you look at it, a lot of those things were um, they it was premature to optimize for them. Had you stepped back and looked at the design, you would have changed the design and wouldn't have needed them or they were actually suboptimal or they were actually just bugs. I mean, um, there are, there's actually a consensus. It, 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 you know, you look at it as a bug. It's, it's just, it's just nonsensical code, but, um, but it remains consensus and trying to, trying to phase it out. Um, but, you know, it was just an optimization attempt. Just to f you save a few bytes here and there, right? And uh, it just didn't work. It, it didn't make any sense. Um, it's called find and delete. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's just a process that everybody goes through. It's just that Bitcoin kind of took on this life, and certain parts of it became unchangeable um, without you know without forking. Um, and they're trying to, you know, people are trying to phase those things out using softworks. So um, that's good. I mean, good, good to, to good to improve things. Um, one of the other design aspects of LeBitcoin is that um, we don't we don't implement new uh, consensus or network features and eliminate the old ones. It's kind of a it's an it's an attempt to maintain the history of of the protocol so that you can go into configuration and set the protocol level you want to operate at and it can operate it at that level um, both in network communication and in consensus so for example in the bitcoin if you want to turn on a soft fork you just you know it's by default, the ones that people are running are, are all turned on, and um, some that are, um, you know, pendings, you know, get implemented and have them turned off. Um, but if you want to roll back to, say, you wanted to disable all the soft forks and sync the chain, um, you should be able to do that, and we do test that sometimes. So. The way other nodes typically are implemented, it's certainly easier, uh, especially given the, the way they're designed, to just uh, you know implement the new code code and delete any other code that would have been required for operating at a lower protocol level. Um, this tends to give us um, problems when, um, or additional complexity when people assume that all nodes are implemented that way, where they only they only implement you know. Um, the latest forks and delete everything else. Um, but we don't, we maintain, 
maintain the entire history back to, I don't know how many, I, I don't remember anymore. I haven't been in the code long uh, in so long. It's uh, hard to remember, but the protocol level goes pretty far back. I mean, um, certainly not to first version, but kind of the first stable, you know, no more hard forking versions. So I got to ask you something which goes back to your background. Would you say that you're more of an eco economist or more of a coder? Uh, Background-wise, I, I have a computer science degree. Um, but right after college, I went to the Navy and I was a pilot for 10 years. So, um, you know, I, and I don't, I don't have a degree in economics, um, but I, I've studied that you know, longer than I studied uh, programming in school. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't call myself an economist. Um, um, I don't really call myself a programmer either. Uh, just, just do things I like. Uh, I'd say my, my, um, my understanding of economic theory, you know, um, rational economics, I call it, uh, because Austrian's a little bit too broad for me, but same idea. Um, is as you know advanced as my programming ability um certainly not um you know i wouldn't be qualified to teach anywhere <laughs> but but that doesn't bother me um, well, not that it matters anyway because i can think of people who have the qualifications as in the formal diplomas but they don't know much other than what they have been told and they haven't researched much yeah. into it, but they're going to perpetuate what they have been taught. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's true very much in programming too. I mean, some of the best programmers, you know, people that didn't, didn't learn in school at all. Um, it's just something you like and you do and you get a lot of experience with and you learn and, and, you know, you spend, you just spend the time and that's kind of, that's really how I learned programming in the first place. I, I, I knew how to code pretty, pretty, uh, pretty advanced stuff before I got to college and, and, uh, the programming courses are, were fairly straightforward. Um, you know, the, uh, um, advanced math and physics and stuff was a little bit more challenging for me, but the coding was easy. Um, and you know, economics is kind of in the same thing. I like it. I, I, uh, I like, I like kind of the nexus of political and economic theory. They're, they're, they're very closely intertwined. And, um, so I just, you know, kept reading and studying and learning. And it, it really, when I started, when I, when I decided I wanted to formalize a lot of my understanding, I went and read a book I'd been putting off for years because it was just so big. And I, I just don't like to, I just don't like to read big books. <laughs> so, um, I finally went and read man economy and state by Rothbard. And, and that was, um, that helped me clarify a number of things. It's, it's a very good work. Um, uh, if I find, you know, Mises, I, I, I went through, um, human action and it was just, it was just, uh, difficult to read. It doesn't, it doesn't write clearly. It's not concise. You know, it's, um, it's anachronistic, um, and he makes mistakes and, uh, Rothbard perpetuates a couple of those mistakes and, but tends to clean up, I think, a number of the things, um, at least in terms of descriptions. Um, you know, Rothbard didn't didn't add an awful lot of 
uh, truly new material. I think his work on Monopoly was was his, but um, but it's definitely a better read. So I, I really enjoyed that, and it was after that that I really felt like I had um, uh, a, a more complete understanding, at least in the areas where I was interested. You know, a lot of people in this space, there are some sort of armchair economists and they like to brag about what they read. But at the same time, I saw you in Riga and your understanding goes a lot deeper than most people. You, you made a whole talk about the importance of credit and that's something that's not really mentioned. They speak of a society where we only use Bitcoin and at the same time promote hoarding large amounts of money. Whereas nothing gets produced as long as you have no credit, right? Right. I mean, without 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 credit, there's no production, and there's no products, and everybody dies. Right? It's it's a nonsensical position, but people just some reason don't don't think of it that way. And it's you know it's very clear if you read uh, and understand um, you know Austrian economics, you'll you'll get it. Um, So. I mean, I've, I've had the experience of, of reading, you know, a lengthy textbook or, you know, something I'm, I'm really not deep into and getting, getting to the end or even getting past one page and just going, you know, what did I just read? I have, you know, it didn't, it didn't really sink in at all. And, um, I, I made it a point when I read, um, Man, Economy and State, uh, because really Austrian economics, uh, at least Mysian economics is based on, uh, it's an axiomatic system, and um, in other words, it's a series of proofs. You start with some assumptions. Humans act. You know, people prefer things now more than later. Um, you assume those things because you can't prove them, um, and then you then you infer from those, um, or you deduce from those what what must be true. So these are these are actually you know just analogous to a geometric proof. Um, and so when I read Man of Communist State, I read every word, you know, carefully, and I made sure that in my own mind, I could verify the proof that I was reading. And if I couldn't, I would spend as much time as it took on a page or, you know, a section or chapter till I got it. Um, and there were, there were one or two places where, I didn't agree. I was like, no, that, that hasn't been shown. <laughs> right. And, uh, I'm, I'm actually, it would take me, a, I don't know if I could even remember off the top of my head. Um, but, um, if people read, you know, cover to cover something like that, and they didn't take that approach, I don't think they would get much out of it. They would, they would maybe remember some high level ideas, but couldn't really understand how, where they come from. And that's what I see more often than not is, is just, you know, repeating terms and phrases without um, real understanding. Um, but if you if you if you treat it like that, like you know, I, I have to I have to follow the the line of reasoning and be able to prove this, as opposed to just reading something that somebody said and accepting it's true because they said it. Um, you know, you're going to get a very different understanding. Uh, and oh, I agree. And you see this. Sorry, I interrupted you, but no, it's okay. You see this a lot. 
in lots of fields and I can think of what happened when I was in college and I did political science and we were being taught such advanced concepts about how government works. And unless you see a practical example and you can point to it and say, you know, that's one case where it happened, it's not going to make much sense in your mind. And I think it was the same with the Bitcoin, with the development of Bitcoin, because in theory, you had all of these scenarios where I can think of, was it the 2013 fork or 2014? It doesn't matter, the hard fork. They, they in theory, could predict that that type of scenario could happen. But it wasn't until it happened that they took the necessary precautions because in reality, human nature is kind of reactive. We can be proactive, but most of the cases we are not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, one thing that people have to be careful about when they talk about Mycenaean economics is that it is an axiomatic system. So it is not in any way based on observation. And that's it. That's, you know, you mentioned being able to observe something as, you know, understanding. Observation helps with understanding. You know, the point of being able to prove things is so that you can understand what's happening and observe it. But um, other schools of economics are largely based on empirical study. And my, um, my sister, uh rejected that flat out. He, he, he said that, you know, um, scientific study cannot predict um, economic behavior because it's human behavior. And um, humans are, have free will. They change their minds. They do whatever they want. Um, so... Uh, he, there's actually Rothbard also writes up a section at the beginning um, of Mankind and the State talking, you know, rejecting what he calls history, which is this idea of, you know, looking at history and predicting the future. Um, in my opinion, neither of them does a great job of that explanation, but it really, it really sunk in with me. And um, when I say that, when I say that I didn't really do a great job, uh, they're describing an axiomatic system system of logic and proof. Um, but, and, and we call time preference an axiom. It's the axiom of time preference, right? Human action is also an axiom and you'll, you'll find a, like a Wikipedia article on the axiom of human action, but they don't describe them clearly enough as axioms. They call them like universal truths or things that must be true. And that's just, they're not, they didn't prove them. Right? Um, try to prove that humans act, right? Well, Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Let's just assume we do, <laughs> right? Um, and then maybe people prefer things now more than later. Maybe they don't, but we're going to assume they do. Let's start with those assumptions, all right? And then let's see what we can prove from that. Um, so I think uh, more formally describing, uh, because I see people that have read these books and completely miss that, that this is an axiomatic system. This is not based on observation at all. And... Um, and then they make arguments that are based on observation. This must be true because we see this or we see that. I'm like, that's not what makes it true. That makes it maybe repeatable, but not truth, right? So um, I, I would really like to see, um, you know, more formalism than was presented in, in those great works uh, as just a next evolutionary step. Um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to speak of, speak economics um in a symbolic language like mathematics right um or geometry right you're dealing with symbols and 
relations that uh, people can people think of as formal logic. I mean, they are formal logic, right? But you can do the same thing with words. Um, but words, you know, don't look as formal and people don't quite get the same feeling um, if they're not really understanding what they're doing. Um, and then sometimes the, the writer, the author, the, the economist who's trying to do this kind of slips into informalisms and, and makes mistakes, um, which Mises did. And, um, you know, a couple of, th at least two or three times and, and Rothbard perpetuated those mistakes. And then we, then we see them and, and you, you look at the proof and you go, well, that's a flawed proof. They didn't prove that. Right. <laughs> so that's an error. Um, so what I'm getting at is that, you know, this, 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 this distinction between an axiomatic system of proof, which Mises laid out, Rothbard, um, clearly adopted, um, is is not is not um, is not well understood by people who read it. It's not, not always understood that that's what they're reading. Yeah, and I think you have mentioned something very interesting there that Austrian school of economics rejects, or at least Rothbard, as you described it rejects the idea of looking at history and trying to predict what's going to happen. Yeah, Mises' Mises's major contribution, his main contribution to economics, if you look at like I, most of the stuff he writes about is stuff that had been written before, but his main contribution is, form, is just explicitly rejecting empirical economics. Right, and, and, yeah, and I was going that. to go to the part about stock to flow S2F, which seems to be a popular theory right now in the Bitcoin space. And they say, hey, look, Bitcoin has gone 10x after the halvings. So it should perform the same way, right? Because there seems to be a pattern here. Right. That's classic, you know, empirical economics, right? We, we observe these things. We draw some lines on a chart. We, we extrapolate those lines. We use complicated, you know, mathematical and statistical analysis to do that extrapolation for us. But that's what we're doing. We're extrapolating history into the future. And that is not Austrian in any way. Right? That is completely um, some other kind of economics, right? It may be, it may be good math, but it's based on um, flawed economics, Um what economic theory, rational economic theory, which is the term I use for Mycenaean kind of axiomatic, because um, Austrian's broader than Mises, right? It goes back further, and it extends out broader. Um, and there are certain people that call themselves Austrians that do empirical economics. But when you look at rational economics, Mycenaean, um, you know, you have to be able to derive this theory from first principles, from the axioms or other theorems that have been derived from those axioms using pure reason. And when you look at a price prediction, you look at, you know, um, you look at uh, an assumption, right? It's not derivable um, because, um, you know, price is, a, price is a function of supply and demand, um, not just supply. It's quite easy, right, to reject that. Right? If you're not considering demand, then um, you're you're you you have a flawed theory. And if you try to say, well, demand, what people will demand, is based on the fact that they like fixed supply, right? Well, 
there's another theory, there's another idea in, in Austrian economics, in rational economics, that value is subjective. It's in, a, it's in a person's mind. And that cannot be derived from anything. That's what subjective means, right? It, it, it's not derivable. And this is precisely why we have the axiom of time preference. It's an assumption. We accept it as an assumption um, because we can't prove it. We can't prove that people prefer now more than later even. We assume it. And we accept that assumption is reasonable and people that are working in that system have accepted that assumption. But if you say, if you say that, well, people will prefer this because it's you know, fixed supply, right? You've just made an assumption. You've added another axiom to the, to the system, right? And uh, I'm sure you'll be able to find a person that doesn't accept it for that reason. Then what does it do to your theory, right? It's observably false, but, you know, you can certainly assume it. Yeah, and there's a lot of assumptions that are being made and a lot of projections. And I can understand their purpose as self-fulfilling prophecies. They hope <laughs> that is going to happen. And they think that if they talk about it all the time, it's, it's going to catch on and people will believe in it so strongly that they're going to make it happen. And I have seen people on CNBC, and that's the worst of all examples. I think that's the lowest intellectual denominator. That's entertainment. So, um, it is entertainment, but they speak of stock to flow and they basically borrow all the jargon that they find on Twitter to basically promote whatever they're trying to promote. Yeah. I, I mean, price, price may skyrocket and, you know, may continue to follow this graph. Who knows? But you can't, it, the, the only points I ever argue is that this is not proven economically, right? This is, so if, if somebody wants to say, well, you know, this is, economic truth i would say well no it's not i mean you can you can make some other assumptions you can do what you want but it doesn't follow um Mycian rational economic theory at all it directly contradicts it um that's the only point i make right is is that if you if you're in that school and you want to say something is true you need to be able to prove it um within the system um if you haven't proved it, it hasn't been shown to be true. That's a very strong statement. I mean, I feel like I should just cut these last five minutes and post them on Twitter for everyone to listen. But I'm not sure who's going to listen because it seems like people just want to believe what they want to believe in. Well, I mean, you know, I, I call it cheerleading, right? What you were describing earlier, which is people you know, trying to rally other people to buy and drive price up and, you know, fun stuff like that. I, I, I wish people would actually, you know, find ways to increase adoption of Bitcoin as, as a, as a money and, and not just try to drive the price up. Um, because the, the value proposition of, of Bitcoin, um, is, is as a money, right. And as a way to avoid taxation on money, um, yeah, you, you could certainly do that by avoiding inflation, but the money's not worth anything if it can't be traded for something uh, that you value. Um, so another, another theory that people have is that, um, you know, Bitcoin can store value. Well, that's also a contradiction. You know, value is subjective. You can't store what's in people's minds. 
you only store stuff. What it's worth is based on what people will trade you for it in the future, right? Um, and you don't know what that will be. So nothing stores value. Um, money is a medium of exchange, and it can be stored. Um, so, you know, it's um, it worries me a little bit that people accept these ideas. People that you know don't really understand economic theory at all just accept these ideas because they're repeated so heavily. Um, you know, my value will always be there. Well. It may be there, it may not be there. <laughs> you know, it's there's nothing that's going to guarantee you that. Not Bitcoin, not gold, not not anything. Um, it, uh, you know, that's what we we would like to see, but you can't prove that. In our first interaction on Twitter, you sent a link to your GitHub repository where you, I, I suppose, you have answered all the questions that have come to you in the last few years. And it was an article that you titled Lunar Fallacy. And you made it sound quite scientific, but it's basically about the concept of always going to the moon and always pumping the price. Well, um, yeah, the theory is that uh, basically the idea is that the, uh, the idea of, of going to the moon is that the price only goes up over time, right? And it will go up perpetually forever over time. Um, and that's disprovable. It, uh, the price of say BTC cannot go up forever. Um, and there, and that it's provable why that is the case yet, um, people still want to believe it. Um, it's not provable where it goes, you know, how, how far it goes, but it is provable that it can't go up beyond the point where, um, it starts getting, um, sufficient fees because it's going up, right? Because, because you've got more demand for it, implying more usage of it, implying more fees to use it because it has a fixed transaction rate. Nothing else in the world has a fixed transaction rate um, with competitive fees to transact. So Bitcoin is unique in many ways, but people tend to ignore um, the ways that they don't like right um so you have fixed supply but you also have fixed transaction rate and competitive cost to transact which means the more people are doing it the higher the price to transact goes up so the idea is you know is that you you have what you want in a money which is stability right you have when when demand increases for gold, more gold gets mined. When demand increases, increases for anything, more of it gets produced, right? Except for Bitcoin. Um, but that keeps price stable, which is what you'd prefer in a money, um, making it a suitable unit of account. Um, Bitcoin is also stable in that when it gets to the point where um, its usage is high enough, it's cost to use um, becomes prohibitive, which means as usage increases, instead of more getting mined, less gets used. Right? And that has the same effect. Um, instead of an increase of supply to offset that increased demand, you have a decrease in demand to offset that increased demand. And the de decrease in demand has the same effect on price as increase in supply. 
but people just ignore that and assume that no matter how much it's getting used, um, price will continue to go up. And that doesn't add up. That was that was the point of the lunar fallacy, is that Bitcoin is a stable money. Um, so how and when did you come up with the concept of crypto economics? Uh, well, the term was floating around before I used it, but it, it didn't have any grounding, right? It didn't, it was just basically whatever anybody thought about economics and Bitcoin or other things like Bitcoin, they would label crypto economics. And I decided that um, I, I, I would like to see, so there's, there's new, there's new concepts in Bitcoin. It's very unique in, in some ways economically, you know, ideas that haven't been explored before. And there's also just a lot of basic economic theory that, you know, supports it and supports its understanding. And so I wanted to see rational economics applied to Bitcoin, um, applied to everything really, but, but applied to Bitcoin well. And I decided to kind of use the term crypto economics to, uh, as an as as the encompassing term for rational economics applied to Bitcoin, uh, to give that to give that term some grounding and to give uh, the community a a place to go to look for answers, right? Like like you can you, there's a there's a lot of places to go to get and like there's good conferences. Um, you know, scaling for example is a great conference when you want to vet ideas and have people challenge them you know bitcoin dev is a great place to go for challenging protocol ideas and seeing how they hold up but there's really hasn't been a home for economic theory there's just mostly most stuff that passes as economic theory is just cheerleading or price prediction or you know non-austrian type stuff anything that deals with you know various assumptions that we've talked about so anyway just just trying to create a home for that and once there was enough material there, people started asking for a book. I said, well, you know, why don't we put the book together and, and create a conference? And my idea was to take the, I take the kind of rigor of scaling Bitcoin from the technical side and the, the, uh, the great environment um, that I've experienced in Riga every year in terms of conferences and kind of put those together um, and have a, have a have a, a good community event where we also had kind of rigorous um, economic theory um, presented and discussed. Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of in a nutshell the idea behind crypto economics is to try to create this home for rational economic theory in Bitcoin. So tell me more about the book. How long did it take you to put it together? How long did it take you to write the articles that can also be found in the GitHub repository? And how do you regard it in hindsight? Because when you first started, you just wanted to answer some basic questions about economics, but then it all came together, right? <laughs> I don't feel like it, it's ever really come together, but... It, it, I just started writing, you know, things that were interesting. A lot of it was just when I'd see something that didn't make sense, I would point it out. People keep repeating it, so I'd write it down, I'd link it, and I got enough of those together. And then I, you know, I I kept I kept trying to solve different 
questions, um, trying to find a way to prove different things. And, um, you know, for, for example, I, I, I remember musing over the question of, um, censorship resistance for like a year, um, before one day I was just walking on the street and it just came to me. I'm like, Oh, this is so freaking obvious. I can't believe, I can't believe it hadn't occurred to me or anyone else that I know of before, which is, you know, the idea that, um, you know, the question is what pays for hash power when there's a 51% attack, what pays to overpower the sensor? Who's, who's going to do that? Right. I think Satoshi implied somewhere that the community would band together and do it. Well, maybe they will, maybe they won't, but you can't prove that, right? You can't, you can't, uh, you can't expect it either. You can't expect that people will act not in their own interest, um, you know, donate money to this cause. So the question was, well, if that can't be assumed, people are, you, know, you can't assume that people are going to act, um, um, you know, in terms of donating money to save this money, um, then how is it, how is it self-sustaining? Right. And then I, I realized that, well, yeah, obviously fees do that, right? Fees rise. And, uh, when your transactions are getting censored, they're not getting confirmed, which means you raise your fee. And as you raise your fee, uh, and you don't get confirmed, it continue to rise until now there's enough incentive for people to mine illegally. If it's, you know, it's a, if it's a 50 or a state 51% attack, they'll mine those higher fee transactions because it's more profitable. Um, and there's an incentive for them to do it. And there's an incentive for people to pay for it because they want to get their transactions confirmed. So in that sense, Bitcoin has, you know, an economically rational explanation for how it can be censorship resistant. Um, the open question, the thing that can't be proven is how much people will be willing to pay um, and how much a, a, a censoring, you know, a 51% attacking, you know, state, for example, would be willing to suffer in terms of losses, tax tax losses, essentially, to continue to censor at 51% despite those higher fee uh, higher fee censored transactions getting confirmed. So, value subjective. You can't deter. You can't know who's going to place more value on which side of that problem. But at least you know what the problem is, right? Um, if the value is great enough to people, they will do it. Um, value is great enough to a state, they will do it. And, um, eventually one is going to win out. Um, so anyway, that was, it's just an example of like one of these ideas that was just kicking around. That's kind of unique. I mean, that one was kicking around for a long time. I just, just kept thinking about it and it just came to me. And, uh, now I see people talk about it all the time, which is great. I hope you know, if we can do more of that, um, get people to think rationally about these problems. Um, you know, because up until that point, the only thing people would say is, oh, we just hard fork the money. And I wrote up the flaws in that that idea um, quite a bit before I found a better solution to that question or better answer to that question. Um, so anyway, I, I just would write these topics and think about problems and put them together. And I just, some, most of them were written on my phone, a lot of times on a plane or in a coffee shop, just, um, just had an idea or had a discussion with somebody and I just read it all down and, and uh, post it. Um, and I went back a couple times and just tried to rationalize terminology and, you know, clean up the text a little bit and, um, just kept massaging it a little bit here and there. And, you know, conference time came along and, um, 
uh, James Chang is the guy that worked on the Bitcoin for a while. Um, when he first got started, uh, he, he made a pretty significant effort to, uh, publish the book. Um, and he did all the graphics that are in the book. They're not on the wiki. That's the one thing that's not on the wiki is that, is the is the presentation graphics that he did. Um, but he wasn't able to get the, the book finished, um, before he went off and, and got some work, uh, working at, uh, I think chain code labs. And then, and then more after that. So, um, eventually I hired somebody to publish it so that we'd have it for the conference. And James was nice enough to, uh, let us use all of the, uh, artwork that he'd done. And so his, uh, his name is, uh, on the cover as well. I think, I mean, take a look. I think it's on the cover. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, he also did some, some, uh, reviewing and, and, uh, editing and, and, uh, challenged one of my topics. Um, he couldn't, he didn't, he didn't get it. And, uh, and as I looked at it, I realized he was right. And then he went and rewrote it, um, used a totally different argument, which actually improved my, uh, improved the content and improved my understanding quite a bit. So it was just, you know, it's just a process of, of writing topics until there was enough there to shove, shove in the book. But it was really all I, I just hired somebody to, to just put it in a different format. It's all, it's all just these random topics I wrote. We had a very hard time even organizing the, the chapters into, into like groups because the, they're not like, it's not sequential, right? Just all randomly interlinked, um, to try to group it somehow rationally. Uh, so it doesn't flow from one end to the other. And, uh, it's much better if you can click on the links and jump around. <laughs> um, uh, the book version just has the, the chapter references and the links at the, in the footnotes. So, um, but I, yeah, I'm, so you know, I'm happy with it. It's it, the, 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 the ideas are there and that's, what's important to me. It, the, the, the concepts are there. If I had to do it over again, I probably would do it very differently if I was going to try to write it from start to finish, but I don't think I could do that. I mean, I, I never intended to write a book, you know, and I've thought about writing other books and just never, I just never sit down and do it because it sounds like drudgery. So it's a book of economics. It's called crypto economics, but how is it different from other works that are related in the Bitcoin space? And possibly the most famous one of them is Seyfedean's The Bitcoin Standard. Yeah. Um, it, well, it's different because it's not written. It wasn't intended to be a book. It's one way it's different, right? It's just, just a bunch of random topics that got thrown together. Um, and the focus was not on writing a narrative focus is writing is writing answers to questions, so, you know, writing little miniature proofs of, of things. And so the, the writing, I, I don't know if you read the book, it's, it's very, it's very different style of writing than most people are used to. And it's not how I normally write. I actually write, write very informally. But when I wrote this, I, I took to heart the idea that these are proofs. So the text is, as minimal as I can be and get the idea across. I don't repeat myself, um, much. Um, I don't use a lot of, um, empirical evidence. Um, I use, I use, yeah, I use, uh, empiricism to explain things sometimes to give some history. Um, 
but not to prove anything. And um, so it's very terse. Um, it's very formal in a way. And it can be very hard to read. People have told me before, like, you know, I read this and, and I don't get what you're saying. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, sometimes I read my own stuff and I don't remember what I was thinking. Um, but uh, so, again, it wasn't written for a book audience. You know, if there is such a thing, it was just written for myself. Uh, so I could get the ideas down and anybody who wanted to go to the wiki and, and read what I thought. So I, I rationalized having it in the Libitcoin wiki because somebody asked me, why is it there? I'm like, well, it was just easy. <laughs> you know, I was lazy, but, but, uh, but I was able to, 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 um, um, what's it called? You know, backfit a story, um, uh, which was that, you know, we're working on Libitcoin and how do we know what we're working on? Right. Like <laughs> we were doing all this work and we, we should understand the principles behind what we're trying to achieve and how it works. And so in a way, you know, crypto economics um, goes hand in hand with Libitcoin as kind of an explanation of what we're actually doing and how things work and what, and in, therefore in some ways what we should focus on um, and what we shouldn't really worry about. I mean, there's, that's actually uh, fascinating, you know, because you combine your two jobs basically into something and there's a piece of writing that's both an expression of your ideas and a manifesto of what you do as a coder. Yeah, I mean, I have I had the advantage of of having written all aspects of Bitcoin kind of core code. Um, I mean, every every line of Libitcoin in one way or another has my has my uh, effort into it. A lot, an awful lot of it I, I wrote or rewrote. Um, a lot of it I reviewed and, and edited and worked with people to help get in. But there isn't a line of code in that entire repository I wouldn't recognize. Um, and so coming at writing economically about Bitcoin from that perspective gives me a tremendous advantage because I... I don't have like a vague understanding of how the code works. I mean, even a, somebody who's spent an awful lot of time working in Bitcoin who hasn't done that level of coding isn't going to have a really clear understanding of the code. I can see this just by, by talking to people who, who kind of, you know, they know their shit, but, but like they will ask questions about how the code works. I'm like, oh, it's, you know, and sometimes I forget, right? But I do, I do have the ability to jump in there and go, oh, yeah, it's, it's, this is what it does. Um, so I, I was lucky enough to not only have a background in computer science, but also, you know, I'd started, uh, you know, founded and, and sold successfully software companies, done production quality code, supported Fortune 500 companies with it. Right? I, I know software engineering, um, ended up selling my first company to Microsoft and worked as an architect there for a couple of years. Um, so I understand that, you know, aspect business aspect, the entrepreneurial aspect, the uh, investor aspect of things, um, and code, but also had spent, you know, decades just reading and studying economic theory. So when that started to get interesting to me, I, I was able to put them together. And I think one of the problems you see with, or, or weaknesses you see in, in, in different writings on Bitcoin 
from an economic standpoint is um, oftentimes there's assumptions made about what the code actually does. Like what is it, what is this system capable of? Um, and you know, like how is it secured? Cause when you start talking about security, you know, there's an, there's an interaction between economics and, and software and, um, you know, cryptography, um, uh, software engineering. And, um, I think without that combined understanding, it's very hard to do, to put together crypto economic theory. You can put together, I mean, some people are far more, uh, have far more expertise in crypto or even, you know, Bitcoin development than I do, at least, you know, being focused in certain areas. Um, and there's certainly people that have far more experience with economic theory than I do, but I don't find a lot of people that have a good level of both. Um, and so I just kind of decided that, you know, it'd be nice if somebody who understood both could put these together in some way, you know, that made more sense. So that, that's, I think when you, when you read crypto economics, you'll see things where you get very specific about Bitcoin behavior and very specific about economic behavior. Um, and I think when you, when you look at other economic books about Bitcoin, you'll see that the, the Bitcoin stuff tends to be pretty light. And when you look at technical books about Bitcoin, the economic theory tends to be kind of light. So there's a limited audience for somebody, you know, reading crypto economics because um, you kind of already have to under, have a good base understanding of both of those. Yeah, I can see how that's difficult because it's hard, you know, understanding Bitcoin is not straightforward. It's not something that you do in a few months. I don't think it's something that you can do in a university course that takes possibly two or three years. Yeah. It's yeah, an ongoing it process. You know, it took, it certainly took me that long. I didn't, I didn't start writing about anything about Bitcoin, um, until a couple of years at least. And the stuff I wrote early on, I just threw it out. You know, I just, it, it, I mean, I took some of the ideas from it, but it wasn't good enough. And, um, yeah, it, it, it took me years to get into all of the aspects of the code. And I remember having these like gray areas in my understanding. And I said, I, I'm going to have to tackle this section of the code because I just really don't get it. And, you know, then I would I'd spend months, you know, coding through some, some new aspect of the code and I did, Oh, now I get it. Now I know how it really works. Um, before I would just like wave my hands. It was kind of vague. Um, so yeah, it just, it just takes a long time. And, and as everybody, everybody has said, who's been there, you know, you're wrong and then you're wrong and then you're wrong again, you know, and, and that does, that happens. Um, and I try to limit my commentary to things that I do that I've, like when it comes to the technology, I, I tend to limit my commentary to the things that I've coded in, at least when, we're t when we start talking specifics, because other stuff, you know, I, I know at a high level, but I don't know in detail. Um, and when it comes to economic theory, you know, I'm, I mean, it, it, it's all one thing, right? It's a system of proof and you can kind of follow the logic and everything, but you know, I tend to I tend to limit it to certain areas as well, things that, that are interesting to Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, I mean that, that's that's important. I think also just to limit your scope to what you know and <laughs> try not to try not to uh, 
extend beyond that just if you're going to go out and learn it. You have received about half a dozen questions from people on Twitter, and that's good. It means that you know they're interested in topics that you you might comment in a different way from other people. But before that, I just want to follow the topic of this season, which is Bitcoin security. And if you were to advise a new user on how they should store their coins and how they should secure them and how they should conduct their personal security, because sometimes when you go public and you say, oh, I'm into Bitcoin, you're turning yourself into a target. So do you have any advice for this sort of both protection of your Bitcoins and protections of yourself? Um, well, personally, you know, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't use hardware wallets. Uh, I don't have any problem with them, but I, I can't really advise people on them. I, 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 uh, I don't have a problem with them in general. You know, I, I, I was developing one for about a year when I first started out. I learned quite a bit about them um, and the limits of the technology and the weaknesses and actually spent a lot of time talking with a guy who sold a company to SAIC who was contracting with the NSA and a lot of inputs on what the state of the art was. So I find that pretty fascinating. Um, but, um, I did end up, um, writing. So I, I, back when I ran my first software company, I ended up writing, um, cert vulnerabilities, you know, computer, uh, what is it? Um, computer emergency response team or um out of carnegie mellon right they keep track of all the vulnerability notices and um i i wrote a few of those uh, against a competitive product because um you know they were you could infer their vulnerabilities from their documentation and uh, we got in a spat over it and they sued us so i'm like oh, i just have cert write these up to confirm them and they did you know um and I kind of did the same thing with one of the uh, one of the more popular hardware wallets um, when it first came out, and then again when the second version came out, and then again when the third version came out. They just kept introducing obvious vulnerabilities right from their documentation. You didn't have to take it apart, and, and you just like read about it and go, hey, "Well, that's a problem." Um, and so people put a lot of faith in these things because they're hardware, I guess. Um, I should say that like when I, when I looked at Trezor, I didn't see any problems. I was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of stuff that I would do. That all makes sense, you know? Um, and, uh, I haven't looked very closely recently, but, um, basically when you make something and you call it secure, what you're, what you have to do is draw a line around that, right? Like it has these limits. If you can accept these limits, then you'll get, you know, these are the, these are the uh, results you'll get. And that's perfectly reasonable. It's necessary. In other cases, people will describe the limits and they're completely out of whack with the implementation. And um, that was kind of the problem I, w I was seeing. So um, I, I don't use them because, I don't know, I'm just too lazy. Um, uh, I don't have any Bitcoin anyway, so you don't have to worry about it. right? I, it was a, we had a big boat trip in, after the conference in Hanoi and we went out on Halong Bay and there were several Bitcoiners there and it was some terrible terrible accident on the on the boat going out to the big boat but um um i would advise people to not broadcast their bitcoin holdings it's probably not a great idea um i would you know i would advise them to keep their keys uh 
secret as best they can. Uh, there's a lot of techniques to do that. And I, you know, I, I, nothing wrong with the paper wallet as long as you can secure the paper. Um, you know, watch out for computers that you keep online and your uh, and have access to your keys because you know there's a good chance you'll get uh, you'll get some malware and you'll be out of Bitcoin. Uh, I advise people to um, not keep uh, too much of their Bitcoin um, in the form of credit for Bitcoin, which means you know you've got it in some account somewhere like Coinbase. Um, um, so you have a promise, and they have your Bitcoin. That's that's been shown to be not the best idea. Um, and you know, those, those are the big ones, you know, keep your, keep your secret secret. Don't, don't do stupid things with them and, and, and keep your Bitcoin on your own and, you know, validate it. And, um, um, I don't know, but, but honestly, it's, it's, it's a hard problem because when it's gone, it's gone. There's no getting it back. Um, and, and when you, when you're not an expert in software and hardware, you're trusting somebody. Um, this is another problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the last time I had a developer on the show, it was Peter Todd. And it's interesting that he made the same kind of recommendations and he also referred to the Trezor as the most secure of all hardware wallets, not necessarily because it has the best security, but because it's the most honest and you know exactly what it does. Well, that is the best security, right? If somebody's not honest and, does, and you don't know what it does, that's not great security, right? The, the thing about the way Trezor has been developed and marketed, it's been, it's been honest about its limitations. Um, and... And it's done fairly simple and reasonable things with this design. Um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll give you, um, like, I, I believe the first Trezor had a screen on it, right? So you could, you could see what it was seeing. So as long as the Trezor was intact and hadn't been exploited, you could make certain assumptions if you trusted the people who made it, right? That, that, um, when you were spending, you were spending to a certain address because it was telling you that. And there were other attempts to solve that problem without spending the time, money, and effort of putting a screen on the device. And those attempts were deeply flawed. And so they would tell you it had, you know, bank level security or, you know, it's the same level of security as something like Trezor, but it wasn't even close. Um, I'm talking about the ledger when it, when the first version that came, I think it was the first version that came out. It had a, it had a solution to this, not wanting a screen problem where you, you put the USB stick in your computer and you run their software and the software would present you the same prompt basically, right? That this is the address you're spending to. Well, of course you have to assume the software is the malware, right? That's the assumption, right? Uh, that's why you have the hardware because you don't trust your computer. So the malware is prompting you with the address, but in order to solve that security problem, there was a um, a card, a little like credit card looking thing that would come with some numbers, letters printed on it that shipped with the device. And they were paired so that um, it took uh, base 58 characters, uh, all of them, and 
and um, the, the the there would be a prompt for you to enter. Uh, I think four of the characters from the card, um, and I'm blanking on the specific details. But the there was there was you would enter four characters, and that would be. Um, essentially validated by the device. And if you didn't enter the right characters, then you obviously didn't have the card and the malware didn't have the characters, so it couldn't produce them, so it couldn't spend your money, right? But if you divide 58 by 4, I don't know, it comes out to 14-something, uh, you, you realize that basically if you use the card a very, very small number of times, like 14, um, then the malware can spend all your money <laughs> because it now has all the mapping from, you know, the secret characters to the, to the public ones. So that was a pretty gaping hole, which you could discover from the documentation. And, you know, that's the difference between, you know, what Trezor did and what other people did is they just, they thought through these problems and realized there's no way for us to do this without putting a screen on the device, at least not any kind of cheap and, reasonably easy way. So um, there were a couple other efforts to solve that problem um, by the same company later on, and they had more complicated implementations that had almost the same problem. And, um, you know, bootstrapping trust problem, and one was a... I'll give you another example of a, of a same thing, uh, hardware wallet vulnerability, where... Um, secure element was used and the secure element uh is basically what you what you see in in uh, credit cards now right this tamper resistant um thing in the card which basically has your private key in it you put it in a device and that's how the device knows that it's actually your card um and the cost at the time i actually I went to a hardware hacking course down in portland and and uh, I talked to some people that were there who had experience in this area. I said, what would it cost to actually shave this card down and get the secure element and read the secret off the element? And they said, well, you know, it's, it's not entirely guaranteed. You might destroy it once or twice if you try, but, but you know, you probably get it done for about $100,000. I said, well, you know, it's not cheap. Um, Prices come down quite a bit, I think, since then. But I even found out it could be done in Seattle, where I am, and contemplated going out and doing it at some point. But um, the interesting thing about it was, okay, there, it's fairly reasonable to assume that nobody's going to steal your card and spend $100,000 to shave it down to get, you know, $1,000, right? <laughs> or 10000 or even fifty, or maybe even a hundred, because you might, it might not work, right? But what if you put the same secret on every card, right? That's what they did. So advertising bank-level security where every card's got a different secret, so you're only risking what you have the ability to spend with that one card. But what if everybody had the same card? <laughs> and that's what they did. Right? So you just buy one of those cards, shave it down, get the secret for a hundred grand, and now you own, you know, you just put out some malware and now you own everybody's Bitcoin. That's a big difference. And that's that's what I mean by not really thinking through the security architecture. And in actuality at the time there were four batches of secrets and it was advertised in documentation that that was the case. So Basically, you would own by shaving one card, you would own a fourth of everybody's Bitcoin that was on those cards if you if you were able to put some malware on their computer. So um, yeah, so these are things that were 
denied and then d discussed uh, with me online. And there's a record out there somewhere of these discussions. And the company just kind of kept doing it until they came up with another version. And people ignored it. So I haven't looked at these things in quite a while. Um, but I never discovered anything like that with the Trezor. And that's what made me happy about it. Yeah, and I guess this is why I prefer to have developers and people who actually understand how stuff works, as opposed to marketers will tell you, oh, buy this. It's the best ever. And yeah, I'm telling is, you, this is this innovative. Is what banks use. <laughs> yeah, this is what banks use. You should buy it. Like, But they use it differently. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's, I mean, you're in business. You got to market. You got to tell people, you know, your strengths, uh, et cetera. But um but it's real money we're talking about. It's people's money. And, uh, um, you know, you got to be careful. So I, I, I find it much easier to secure, you know, to, to verify the security of my paper wallet than, it, than, than a piece of hardware. Um, but, you know, they, they, they certainly have their advantages. It should be pretty late where you live. So I don't want to keep you up past your bedtime. So how about we wrap this up? But maybe ask you a few questions from people who wanted you to answer questions and ask you to be as short as possible. Okay. Because I don't want to keep you too much and you seem tired <laughs> and you seemed excited. <laughs> you said, okay, as in, okay, I, I can finally I'm go. actually, I've done marathon uh, call. I think I did a few hours with, uh, uh, John, um, I can't remember his last name, uh, but I, I'm pretty flexible uh, and I stay up late, but I'd be, I'd be happy to wrap it up when you're, when you want to. Okay. That's very diplomatic of you. <laughs> so I suppose the easiest of questions come from Lord Snooty of Bitcoin and he wants to know what you did with that CB 750 brake pedal. <laughs> what did I do with it? Um, I worked on it today, actually. I, uh, I, uh, I, I sanded it up with some uh, 320, 400, and 600 grit uh, sandpaper uh, wet sand on the last round, and uh, and uh, wire brushed the uh, the uh, the hole where it mounts, and put it on the shelf uh, to get ready for uh, powder coating. <laughs> I don't know why he wants to know that. No idea, but he he got to receive the answer, so I hope he's he will be happy. So Victor Iram wants to know, what do you think about, oh, do you think that hyper-Bitcoinization happens? And you, he mentions that you have been skeptical in various interviews. And what would be the reason for it not to happen? And you reply, define it and I'll comment on it. I suppose the most common definition of hyper-Bitcoinization is the one that's mentioned in the popular article on Nakamoto Institute. And it's the one where it becomes at least to be a reserve currency of the world, if not well, a mean of exchange. Then you got to define reserve currency. Um, but uh, um, medium of exchange of the world, uh, you know, uh, when, when is it question? When does that happen or is it possible? He wants to know why you think it's not possible because you have expressed oh. some skepticism. Well, I, I, I never, I never say it's not possible. If it's possible, it is possible. Uh, what I say is that there are 
there are forces that um, that maybe make it unlikely, right? Um, it, the the value proposition of Bitcoin is in is in avoiding tax. I mean, ultimately, all the advantages that we see come from the fact that you know we can uh, avoid, say, in, uh, inflation tax, signage. We can avoid um, um, border controls, you know, currency controls. Um, we can avoid um, monitoring so that we don't pay other tax. You know, basically all these restrictions I just lump into one category, call them tax. So if if tax is what you're avoiding, I mean, there's people that want to collect tax, right? And the easiest tool they have to prevent you from using this thing that's avoiding tax and their, you know, in, in associated regulations, right? Is to just ban it, right? Just say, no, you can't do that, right? Uh, it's a very easy thing to do, and it's been done to monies before many times around the world. So um, that uh, implies that it would be challenging, right, to see Bitcoin be both um, widely used and done so in the white market, where, you know, in other words, with the assumption that it's completely legal to do all the things that we imagine doing with it possible but um seems unlikely um so you know i i, I refer to bitcoin as a black market money right it, it's it's a it's a money that works when it's not allowed this is what we mean when we say permissionless right we we will not require any permission from you we will you know if you don't give it we'll do it anyway right that means you're black market from the perspective of the permitting authority um, so if by hyper Bitcoinization, you meant a lot of use and you weren't expecting it to be in the white market and say, yeah, that's very possible. Um, if you're expecting it to be in the white market, I think that's a challenge. Right. So Mog me M O G G wants to know if your crypto economics book will be available on Amazon and not just if, but when, <laughs> Um, well, uh, I'm working on it, uh, through somebody else who's doing the actual work and, uh, that's going a little slow right now because of all the, uh, Rona hysteria. So, um, uh, I can't really say when, but I can say that I do intend to get it up on Amazon as a Kindle book. That's the current plan, a Kindle book and a, a print on demand version. Um, I mean, the content's already available for free right now, so it's readable. But uh, yeah, I, I, I would I would like to get it done, you know, in the next few months, couple months. Um, but we'll see. Things just aren't moving very quickly right now. Um, but you know, we got the print version done from nothing to to printed in about a month. So if my uh, if my publisher um, wants to pick when, when she's ready to pick it up, I think it'll happen pretty quickly. Also, Mog wants to know what you think about privacy projects like Grin and Monero. Um, I, I think improving privacy in Bitcoin is one of the uh, one of the key things that core development uh, really should be working on. Right? When we talk about core development Bitcoin, we're really talking about um, you know strengthening the properties of the money that make it. Uh, they give it its value and preserve its value, which is the ability to avoid tax, right? And if you're a transparent money, it's not very effective at uh, some 
types of tax. So uh, I think that's very important. And uh, in terms of implementations other than Bitcoin, um, I don't have a lot of experience with them. So I tend not to comment on them. I'm, my, my, my general input is that, yeah, privacy is important. Um, I will say that I, I have looked at um, I've looked at some other coins from uh, kind of an investment advisor, you know, kind of a um, it, I give some advice to people sometimes that run funds and do things like that. And, and uh, just looking at the at the kind of architecture, um, I find a lot of flaws uh, when I look when I look closely economic flaws um, and also some kind of um, engineering flaws. So I, I can't say anything like that about Monero. I don't, I really haven't looked at it. Um, I just, you know, privacy good. Um, implementation, not always great. Okay. So what are your main takeaways from the conference in Vietnam that you attended? I thought about this one several times today and I was like, what a hard question. Um, my main takeaways was, um, I mean, the big issue with the, with the conference, it was, it was going along very smoothly. Um, it was surprisingly easy to do everything I wanted to do to get the conference off the ground. And then, you know, then the Rona hit and everybody was, was, uh, freaking out and, uh, it became very difficult all of a sudden. Um, so, you know, don't, plan the conference during a panic. <laughs> um, that was, uh, that's, that's probably a good idea. Um, uh, I was, I was pleasantly surprised with how many people, um, you know, came halfway around the world at that time to, to attend the conference and, uh, what a good time we did have. That was, that was really good to see. Um, and, um, takeaways from the conference. Uh, my, you know, my, my takeaways from the conference are more like how to put on a conference. Um, so maybe not that interesting, but you know, uh, audio visual was a little bit of a challenge. Um, we still don't have the, uh, the videos out. Um, but they are actually in process. There's, um, a, a pro has been working on them for a while. Uh, there were a lot of problems. Um, due to the recordings. So, um, you know, uh, it'll be, it'll be a first time conference uh, set of presentations, but it's all, I think it was all captured and it'll all be, it'll all be, uh, uh, legible. Um, but I would, I would do that, that part a little differently. I, I didn't think it was going to go great cause we were just throwing things together. Um, uh, we, we had, we had a lot of things back out at the last minute because of the Rona. So we, we lost, we lost our band and we had to find another one. We lost, um, you know, lost attendees. We lost speakers. Uh, we weren't really prepared to do remote audio and we did several of those. Um, we, we, uh, had to switch the AV team at the last minute. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of things that probably would have come off uh, pretty smoothly. Um, if it wasn't for that, but now that I'm aware of them, if we do it again, um, you know, those, that'll be better. So it was a takeaway, you know, just, just what to, what to focus on. Um, but in all, it was, it was great. I just didn't, um, a lot of great people did, um, a lot of the work and made it pretty easy for me. 
especially the venue. I mean, the people that hosted it were tremendous. It was a motorcycle shop. And they, uh, they took care of most of the local stuff. So. Okay. So I think another question that's interesting, but has received a solution lately comes from Crypt Chameleon. And he considers the scenario where governments balkanize the internet and create a multitude of intranets and how do nodes sink in this situation and is this a threat to the bitcoin network because there will not be settlements between nodes or how can there be an outside chain to basically monitor the entire situation and sink all the others but i suppose the blockstream satellite can solve this solution or the problem if the presumption is that that the internet is now in you know a bunch of independent networks and not an internet then by definition that means that these networks are isolated and they're not syncing and you have different coins right you have effectively have different coins um now presumably there'd be some way to bridge those networks and eventually once you did you know the, the there'd be a big reorg on one or the other right um so there's a lot of ways to you know bridge those that scenario there's a lot of suggestions that people have had um i'm much much more of a fan of peer-to-peer solutions um you know crazy kind of peer-to-peer internets um what was it mycelium was one that that was uh i don't know where that is or you know there's a lot of suggestions to these things like um um decentralized networks uh, more decentralized than you know your cable provider on the other hand like uh i i wrote it when when the when the blockstream satellite became a thing right when it was announced i wrote uh kind of a critique of it it's not it's not uh, i don't think in the book it, it is on the wiki um and i raised some questions and i still have concerns about it because it is not decentralized right um and so uh, it puts an awful lot. So it, it's meant to solve a f- few problems, and I don't think it really solves any of them well. Um, you know, if you're in the middle of nowhere and you've got only one service provider, and that's your satellite, then you're completely relying on whoever controls the satellite, and that's not actually Blockstream. I mean, they don't actually own these satellites, right? They rent, as far as I know, they rent time on them. Um, but even if they did, you know, space is pretty well controlled by the state. And um, and if they want to step in and do something, they can easily do it, just like they could with Coinbase or any other, you know, visible visible entity. So if people could p- become dependent on it, it's an easy attack point. Um, so you're, you're, you're putting an awful lot of trust. Um, if you imagine that bridging the entire world, that seems like a really bad idea. Um, now, the... The, um, the counter to that is, well, people would supplement it. These are the counters that were raised when I raised these issues, right? They, people would supplement with their own local network, right? Uh, their cable provider or whoever they have, and they'd be able to see the strongest chain. Um, you know, you can always validate, so you know what's valid, but you may not be seeing the strongest chain. Um, and so... Um, that gives you, you know, that gives you an alternative. But then again, you're back to the point of either trusting the central 
you know, provider of the world's blockchain or, or trusting your local cable provider. And if you're, if you're, you know, you, you have to, you have to kind of question the, the one central one, right? So you're back to kind of trusting your local provider. It's, it's not a, to me, it's, it's better, but, you know, but it's not significant in my mind. It's just too much of a, too much of an obvious um, attack point. I would much rather see you know, decentralized networks. Um, space is unfortunately um, entirely centralized um, by the state. Um, so, anyway, that's that's my uh, that's my my general feedback on it. Is you become too reliant on that, you know, space, um, it could be a problem. Yeah, I suppose that's a valid criticism if you're an American citizen and you know that the United States owns about 90% of commercial satellites in space and possibly military too. So if the threat model is against the US government, then it's a valid criticism. But if you're in some sort of authoritarian country which shuts down the internet all the time, I suppose the United States can actually be your friend. And that's why I think that Tor development gets funded because it serves the agenda of the U.S. government. Yeah, I mean, Tor was Tor was originally developed by, I think it was the U.S. Navy, right, as a means for it to communicate privately. And it, and it needs to support other people using it so that it has traffic to mix in. Um and I think, you know, um, I think, um, it, you know, there are issues with Tor and other um, uh, anonymizers, but that they're complex. You know, they're they're um, they're not ideal, but they're the best we have, and um, that. You know, there's people have tried to wedge certain aspects of that into Bitcoin. I don't think that's a great idea. Um, this is an entirely different and large set of technologies that uh, that need to ad advance as well. And Bitcoin, along with everything else, you know, needs you know is potentially going to become very dependent on them. Um, but you know, I I I, I I'm kind of digressing on that a little bit. I, I get your point that right this. This, um, you know, banana republic that uh, that denies your Bitcoin access can, uh, you know, you can serve people there by having, you know, the one the one true satellite uh, provider. And, you know, I don't put it all in the U.S. I mean, countries work together. You're talking about a country that's adversarial to the U.S. and uh, and its people. Um, and, you know, it could certainly if you're willing to trust um, other places, it can certainly help. But to me, the uh, there's there's a real vulnerability um, potentially developed in a scenario where that you described a scenario where that bridges all these independent networks, right? Where all these internets have been isolated, and and uh, now the one bridge is this central point, which is that's not a great um, solution, I don't think. Um, but there are other solutions to that problem that, uh, you know, people have, have discussed. Um, 
and I think you know over time those those things will evolve as as I think um, you know anonymity networks will evolve too. Um, it's not just Bitcoin that needs these things. Also, Cryptchameleon says that privacy is paramount for a black market money to survive. But what things would you be focusing on or rank as important to work on in regards to global communication resilience? <laughs> I don't know. Global communication. I mean, resilience versus privacy is kind of two different things, right? Global communication is pretty resilient, um, pretty reliable, amazing compared to good old days. Um but in terms of privacy, yeah, I mean, anonymity networks are hard things. There's, there's, there's lots of people working on them, you know, well outside of Bitcoin as well. Uh, not my area of expertise. Um, I'd only say that it's important. You know, I, I just don't, I just don't work in that space. I could, I couldn't tell you you know, what I think is best. Yeah, don't worry about it. These are just questions from the audience. They're not mm -hmm. my personal fascinations or anything. So no, if no, that's... I, mean, I, I wish I wish I did have expertise in those areas, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend I do. I, I really don't. I've used Tor, I've used I2P. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I understand the general weaknesses and, um, and um, it's kind of an arms race. And uh, I hope it gets better. So Thanks, the last well. question for today comes from Mog Dynasty. I, I think I have also asked a couple of questions from him, but it doesn't matter. I try to cover them all. And he wants to know to what degree you're worried that retroactive laws will be passed to outlaw current developments in the so-called post-honeymoon phase. And why do Bitcoin developers risk this by currently using real names? Well, uh, at least in the U.S. and in the West, you know, ex post facto laws tend, tend to tend to not not get too far. There, there certainly been some examples, but um, you know, it's charged with a crime for something that was legal that was legal when you did it. Um, other parts of the world, who knows? I mean, if they're passing ex post facto law, they're probably in a place where they'll throw you in jail just because they feel like it. Um, so, why do people not? use pseudonyms um it's inconvenient um and people some people just want to be known i don't you know they don't think the risk is high enough um that's i follow that category i'm very public um use my real name as my you know as my name just about everywhere um had i you know was i were, was were i to start over again um from where i'm now I, I i'd consider it but um um, it's almost like, you know, you know, say Peter Todd, or, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a privacy guy. Right. And uh, a lot of people in the space, but they're also very public about themselves. And I think part of that comes from the idea that, you know, it's kind of too late for us, but we can help everybody else. And that's kind of how I look at it sometimes. Like, look, I'm, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to, some shit happens. I'm not going to be private, but hopefully I've made it better for other people. Um, I guess there's a counter argument to that, which is, you know, set a good example. Um, but I really just, I don't expect people to, to do that because, you know, 
like I do or anybody says is a good idea. They do it if they want to do it. It's their choice. Yeah, I it's think just, Peter it's just really hard to. It's just really hard to do. You know, it's it, to do effectively. And people who understand how hard it is to do, a lot of times they just don't try because they know it's kind of futile. Peter Todd, it's funny that you mentioned him because we had a similar conversation, but he spoke in a metaphor and he said that sometimes it's a bad idea to be the get off my lawn type of person and be lonely. And it's good to allow kids to play in your, in your yard because they provide some sort of protection. And if anything happens to you, the kids are going to see Yeah. So possibly this is his metaphor for saying that if he disappears or something terrible happens to him, at least he is public and people will notice that he disappeared. Whereas in the case of Satoshi Nakamoto, nobody knows what happened. He yeah, might have yeah, been he, killed he for got, got, what we know. <laughs> yeah. That's a very that's a good point. Yeah, Peter's always always get uh, got some good points and good analogies. Yeah, yeah. It's it's there's some there's some truth to that. You know you. You, uh, but then again, in, in some dark corners of the world, you know, famous people get disappeared or arrested, uh, all the time. Um, there was some, uh, some fairly well-known, uh, you know, uh, what would you call them? Um, ah, the, the word is escaping me. Um, uh, um, I know what you mean. Guy, guy in Hong Kong you know, just got arrested. He was like in his 70s and, you know, outspoken advocate for reform. And you know, like they just arrested him, locked him up. Like it didn't, uh, didn't stop him. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, that probably the, the bigger risk is, is, you know, people who are careless about, you know, advertising their wealth or their, you know, um, their Bitcoin and then wandering around in places where people want some. Um, and I think, I think generally people are, are more careful about that than they are about like their own identity and who they are. Right? I mean, it, there's a lot of people that work in Bitcoin and have for a long time that probably don't have much at all. I mean, you know, people have to pay their bills and, uh, um, people might assume they have some, but, You don't really know. That's a good thing. Yeah, and some people look at you and they do some background check and they see how long your involvement in Bitcoin goes. And from there, they're going to project some numbers. They're going to say, okay, so if this person made about $2,000 a month in income and it was paid in Bitcoin, then it's likely that right now they are so wealthy that possibly it's it makes economic sense for me to try to attack them or try to extort the money from them. But I don't know. I mean, if they're making $24,000 a year, they probably don't have any Bitcoin, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to, I mean, people, you know, people, uh, people earn it and people have to spend it too. So you don't, you don't really know. There's some people that are well-known um, that have big holdings, but, you know, I don't really know who's got what. Because and I'm around enough people, they just don't talk about it. It's good. Yeah, it's great. And in the beginning, it was this idea of money that's easy to transfer and is censorship resistant. So 
The store of value narrative was not really prevalent at the time. Not many people regarded Bitcoin as such. No, it's a money. It's a medium of exchange. If it's not useful for that, then it's just literally not useful. I mean, it's, you got to be able to exchange it for something to get any, anything out of it. And they actually wanted to have their Bitcoins accepted in as many places as possible because to them it was a way of validation. It was a way of making people acknowledge that Bitcoin has value. Yeah, yeah. If nobody takes it, it's literally valueless. I mean, it's worthless. It's not worth anything else. Somebody's got to accept it. Even if they're accepting dollars or euros for it, people have to accept it. Um, so... Um, You know, I, I think, I mean, Bitcoin is very useful as a money. It's just that people have put their own expectations on it. Um, and, you know, those expectations are not necessarily realistic, right? Like that it'll just be this white market money that will wipe out state monies. Um, you know, states have shown pretty, pretty consistently a desire to keep their own monies. And they have a lot of tools. Uh, to prevent white market usage of other monies if they want to, and they, they do, they use them. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, Bitcoin gets used for right now that um, um, may or may not be white market, you know, and there's reason for that, right? I was just an example of like why they have ATMs out in front of surf clubs, right? You have your credit cards, that's your credit money, right? Your, your uh, um, account money, and then you have paper money and, You know, they have different use cases and people will take their credit cards, get some paper money, go in, you know, and, and why? Hey, you got a credit card. Um, so, you know, Bitcoin's kind of the same thing. People, uh, people want to send money across borders and not deal with currency controls. You use Bitcoin. It's easy. I mean, I, I, I used Bitcoin quite a bit during the conference because, you know, it was an awful lot of international payments in both directions. I was paying for stuff in in uh in one country and you know getting the book done getting the conference done and people are paying for attendance fees and stuff like that and it's just so much easier and faster than wire transfers you know international payments um and um you know i, I people are like well when, when's bitcoin gonna you know become you know useful and i mean it's just, it's already useful it's you know it's it's used quite a bit Um, but people have an expectation that it will do something else. And, you know, uh, I mean, I remember Amir telling me this uh, when I first got started. He was one of the first people I, I met with. I went out to Spain and spent a couple of days with him. And and because uh, I was interested in the Bitcoin project and I wanted to meet the guy who, who was running it. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how he described it to me. And kind of that's what I've seen all along. It's, this is, it's already useful. Why are we complaining? You know, it's been very, very successful. Um, yeah, probably, you know, way beyond uh, Satoshi's expectations, maybe. Um, so, you know, I, one thing I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see Bitcoin as a casino, right? It's it, people think, look at it that way, like you know, it's just gambling device, right? <laughs> just speculate on it and worry about its price every day. That I mean, that's not why I got a Bitcoin. Um, you know, I, I think it can help people, um, and the price of a unit of Bitcoin is irrelevant you know, as long as there's sufficient um, 
uh, activity for the coin to exist uh, and be secure, that's good enough. And uh, and the uh, you know the the expectation that it's just a you know free money is 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 kind of wacky, I think. Um, of course, people will have it. They they want to see the price go up. Great, and that's that's where the cheerleading comes from. Um, you know, if the price goes up because a lot of people are using it, that's great also. But but you know, it is usable right now. I use it, you know, whenever the uh, occasion arises that it's more useful than my alternatives. Yeah, and speaking of usability and occasions, I usually, at the end of my interviews, and I ask the guests about which charity cause or where they want the donations that will be sent possibly to this episode. Usually I don't get any donations, but when I publish something on the website, I put a QR code and I say 50% of any amounts donated to this address are going to go to some sort of development fund or something, or possibly to the guest if they don't have a lot of money and they need it. So do you have any preference in regards to where 50% of any donation should go? Yeah, I, I always direct people to the Libitcoin Institute. Um, you know, Tom Pakia, and he's in New York, um, and I and, and Lucas Bessart, um are the um, trustees of this thing. And uh, it, it's set up to uh, fund the Libitcoin development and education. And uh, if anybody wants to donate, uh, on my behalf, that's where I would send them. I don't have a QR code for you, unfortunately, but uh, there's a website, the Bitcoin Institute. Contact yeah. me. So if I get any donations from this episode, I'm going to send 50% to the Bitcoin Institute. Yeah, I think it's uh, libitcoininstitute.org. So. Okay. So at this time, I'm sorry I have to say this, but I don't have any more questions for you, even though I suppose I could have extracted a lot more knowledge, but it's been almost two hours and it's about 2 p.m. or later, 2 a.m., sorry, where you live. So thank you very much for this interview. I feel honored that you spent so much time talking to me. I suppose you could have done something more useful and productive. Not at all. I'm just sitting on the couch all day long. Well, I hope you're not just trying to make me feel better about it, but thank you.